there's only three things that we can train as humans. We can train our craft. We can train our body, our carriage, if you will, and we can train our mind. And if you're leaving one of those up to chance, like you're leaving like a really big opportunity on the table. And most people have not done the deep psychological work to be able to know what it even means to train your mind. Hello and welcome to the show. It's Chase. And you just heard from Dr. Michael Gervais. Michael Gervais is a legend, an absolute legend in the world of high-performance psychology. I first became familiar with his work uh, around a podcast that he's got called Finding Mastery, and he was the psychologist, the performance psychologist for the Seattle Seahawks, which is my favorite American football team. And I was connected to Michael through some mutual friends, got to spend some time down in the field at a couple of games. He was an amazing host and I got to be a guest on his podcast. But to be real, like I covet the work that Michael does. His wisdom around high-performing athletes, business leaders, cultural icons, heads of state, like he really, really knows his stuff. And as you all know, that's that high performance has been a sort of an underpinning ethos of our show here for a long time. It's what part in part what links a lot of the guests and makes them uh, people we want to learn from. And again, Dr. Mike's relationship with these kinds of people, the ability to train them and, and to understand not only what makes them tick, but what could make them very, very successful is one of the reasons you should care about today's show. He has been a previous guest. He is a uh, absolutely incredibly well-spoken on this stuff and he makes it simple. It sounds fancy, right? High-performance psychologist. But what he does and specifically has done in his new book called The First Rule of Mastery is make these complex ideas very simple for us. So in today's episode, we cover a handful of very, very tactical things that you can do today to become elite in whatever it is you're interested in. We talk about things like visualization. You know what a huge um, advocate I am. He helped me understand something new specifically around visualization is it's not necessarily just visual. It's imagery and imagery because imagery makes us swim. It's a, it's a more experiential way of thinking about it. So when you're uh, thinking about being successful at this thing that you've been working at for a long time, whether that's putting a piece of art on the world or building, building a business or uh, you know, giving a keynote address. He gives us very, very tactical things. Whatever your passion is in the world, you can benefit from high-performance psychology. I'm a huge fan of Dr. Mike's. Today's episode is an absolute, just a laser beam into how you can bring this into your life. And so it makes me very happy to share this episode with you today. I'm going to get out of the way. Yours truly and Dr. Michael Gervais. Michael, welcome back to the show. We're excited to have you. I'm so stoked to be back with you. So thank you again for including me. Oh, of course, of course. As a kickoff, pun intended there for the uh, football reference, would you please orient us sort of uh, around you, your work, how you um, how you show up in the world and why people who are listening to the show today are going to care? Let me start with a very grounded approach is by training. I am a sport and performance psychologist with a specialization, if there is such a thing, it's not, it's something more that I made up than has been donned or knighted, is a specialty in consequential environments. So environments where when people make mistakes, there are often physical, financial, deep emotional consequences that take place. And then, um, so I spent much of my time working in those 
environments of speed and accuracy where things got to be right. And um, there's a there's an honest commitment to being one's best, to be honestly in service of teammates, because mm-hmm. we need each other um, on the frontier. And that honest approach in those honest environments um, was the most pure way that I could come to understand how psychology shows up uh, under stress and pressure. And so it's kind of moving way out into the extremes to be able to have a better understanding what um, most of us are trying to sort out in life is like, how do I do okay in life and stress and pressure and that feeling of um, not being good enough or that, that agitation that there's more to give and more to grow. Like how do we work with that, that membrane? So that's, that's where I spend most of my time is on the frontier, working with the best in the world in consequential environments. And um, as a hobby, I get to just hang out with people like you and have great conversations, you know, on, on, the, on podcasts about the things that keep me up at night. So that's a little context. If, if people really knew that that's all, all of us who have longstanding shows like Finding Mastery, which is yours and here are the Chase Jarvis live show, there's a, there's a whole bunch of self-service that goes on, right? We just get to fulfill these lovely uh, things that we would be doing otherwise and we just record them and share them with the world. So um I give us a little, like, I want to excavate your, you know, working with people on the frontier of high performance and give us an example of some people that you work with, some, some additional like companies, people, problems that you work on specifically so that, uh, we can, you know, continue to scratch away at this. What is, what does it mean to be what you're doing, what you're doing, where you're doing it? Okay. So the, 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 big picture right now is I've taken those best practices from the frontier and I'm trying to figure out best practices that can be ported into enterprise companies and you know small and medium companies as well. So what are the best practices that can be inside the rhythm of one's business to help their people be their very best? And so that's what we do on the frontier is like people are invested in being their very best because when they make mistakes, what kinds of people are you talk what kinds of people are we talking about when you say people? Um, so employees, managers, leaders, you know, so folks inside of an organization, Got multinational it. organizations in particular, that um, have a bold ambition, like, and it can be a smaller company, but it, the idea is there's, there's an, I'm going to go back to that word, there's an honest and earnest approach to do something big in the world. And mm. most companies are trying to do something along those lines. Most are. And so... Here's, a, here's like a grounding approach here is that there's only three things that we can train as humans. We can train our craft. We can train our body, our carriage, if you will, and we can train our mind. And if you're leaving one of those up to chance, like you're leaving like a really big opportunity on the table. And most people have not done the deep psychological work to be able to know what it even means to train your mind. And that's where athletics has paid dividends is that Athlete, uh, athletics and elite athleticism is about 10 to 15 years ahead of where business is. And mm. 10 to 15 years ago, sports psychologists are walking the hallways, like making um, impact on the training of the mind. And so I'm just taking those best practices and, and seeing how we can crosswalk those over to business. And um, so that's kind of the way we're doing it now. And, and the, the, the big kind of opportunity is not to say to people, this is where we were 20 years ago in sport, 
coaches and athletes would be like, oh yeah, mental part of the game. Oh yeah, that's important now. And then you say, okay, so what are we, do, what are we going to do? And they go, ah, how about, yeah, how about imagery? But they do that after practice. They do that on their own time. They do that like, you know, before they go to bed. There's no time. There's no extra time to try to squeeze things in later. So the opportunity that we figured out in sport is we, we need to figure out how to make it snackable, easy to lift, and to do it throughout the day, as opposed to a heavy lift right before you're going to fall asleep or get up 30 minutes earlier to do some sort of mindset training. Like we're, we're running at, at, at the end of our ability to add more to our plate. So what, our, what we're doing is taking good science and figuring out how to fold it into the day as opposed to something later and extra. And when you mean, when you say imagery, for example, you're talking about the practice of visualization, meditation, neutrality. These are some concepts that if, and I'd like to hear hear your words because I'm putting words in your mouth right now, which is a total faux pas, but to try and orient our listeners, like these, when, when people think of the highest performers in the world, Largely, as you have historically, um, we, we have talked about it in the context of athletics and just peak performance, like with artists, musicians, and now you're taking this into businesses, which is, I think, why it's especially relevant to our listeners. But you're talking about like seeing, you know, goals as having happened, seeing your health and thriving in these. If you talked about those three buckets, if we're not doing one of those buckets, we're th- essentially 33% behind where we could be. And if we're not practicing with two of those buckets, your craft, most people, that's obvious, right? Because we were taught that as children to like, oh, if you want to be good at soccer, you got to kick the ball against the wall a bunch. But these other aspects of the game and by extension, business and now life, those we're, we're, we're potentially missing out on that stuff if we're not training it with the same sort of approach. Is that a fair statement? And how would you add to that? You've nailed it. You know, And so here's where we landed is that uh, I'll use 20 years ago, just for some, some grounding is that, you know, there was this idea that psychology was for the weak because the medical model studies dysfunction and psychology sprung from the medical model. So we studied the dysfunctions, the disorders, the diseases of the mind, if you will. And it got a little bit of a bad rap, you know, and we've tabooed you know, psychology in a way that that's for the weak. It's changing. It's been changing over the last kind of 15 years. And there's been some real advances in the last five years, still not enough. Mm -hmm. Definitely not enough. When you go into those honest environments where people are fundamentally committed to understanding their potential, and I'll give you a very concrete example in a minute, that they they are pulling for psychology. They are saying, I need more. I need to be I need to be more grounded, more clear. I need to figure out shit on the fly. So I need to be more creative when the stakes are really high. How how can I be more present? How can I be more fluid? So they're pulling us into the room as opposed to like, what? We don't need that weakness. Get get out. Like, it's not that. So, and that's where many um, kind of average environments might be right now. They're like, oh yeah, psychology is good for those people but not like meaning the, the weaker people, but I don't need it. I'm good. I'm strong. That's going away the dodo. And people are going to get left behind because when you invest in what we have come to understand to be one of the most powerful 
machines. I'm butchering this beautiful neural networks of brains and this complicated idea of a mind. It's the most powerful system we have on the planet. And if you don't invest in that, like it's going to run the show now. <laughs> and the brain's dictum is to just keep you alive. That's it. It just stay alive. So it scans the world to find all the danger. It's picking up all the threat detection mechanisms. And that's not the good life. That's maybe a long life, but that's not the good life. It's certainly not a high performing life. And so here's, I want to make this concrete example is there's a, a, a person that's in your backyard, Luke Akins. So Luke Akins gives me a call and he says, um, Hey Mike, now he's one of the best in the world in um, flying out of airplanes. Okay. Jumping off of uh, high towers, base jumping and wingsuiting and parachuting. He's one of the best flat out in the world. So he calls and says, Mike, I want to, I want to, I want to go up 30,000 feet. Um, this is basically where airliners travel and I want to jump. What do you think? I go, yeah. Well, okay. Like you could do that in your sleep. And he says, yeah, but this one I want to do without a parachute. I go, okay. Well, what do you mean? He goes, well, I want to build a 16-story net that's about as big as a four-car garage. And I think I can hit that thing. And to do that, though, I want to make sure my mind, my mental skills, like all of my internal faculty are rock solid. You want to go to work? Like, yeah, let's go to work. So those are the types of conditions and environments that I'm talking about where people have to be locked in to be their very best. Because if they make a mistake, like if you don't hit the net and you don't have a parachute on your back, and by the way, when you jump from 30,000 feet or when next time you're up at 30,000 feet, imagine how big, just see, like find a house and that's the target he has to hit. And if he misses that target, like you know, game over. So, so I want to bring those best practices into living rooms and meeting rooms and boardrooms. And there is a better way. There's a, a way to be more free, to have more energy, to have a deeper zest for life. And it is, it's not expensive. It takes a little bit of time and a little bit of attention to knowing how to work with your own mind. And the way I think of psychology right now is the study of oneself. And like, if you want to be better at anything, you need to study it, right? And I mean, really study it. And so it's really an exciting time because we, we've got about mm, 50 years of the science of the psychology of excellence. And that's what we're borrowing from. If I'm going to translate this into the mind of the listener right now, my understanding of the work you're doing, and this is a great time to introduce your latest book. And congratulations, by the way, it's a masterwork of excellence. The first Thank rule you. of mastery stop worrying about what people think of you. So imagine this 50 year, um, I guess, collection of data around excellence. Imagine the, what you've been doing with the highest performers in the world, you know, across sport, business, um, artistry, just life. And if I'm going to sort of throw a dart at what you're saying, you're saying is that there is a path for this now to be more widely available. The process of mindset, awareness, studying your own psychology 
is a massive lever in all of these areas, high performance, life and business. Is that fair to say? First of all, hundred percent. And thank you for the compliment and a hundred percent accurate, very clearly said. Okay. So what is to me of specific and I think paramount interest to the listener who is on the show right now, this idea of worrying about what other people think of you. You are taking this from a quarterback who's playing in the Super Bowl, dropping back to pass. If he throws a bad pass, there are high consequences. Um, but part of the consequences is, you know, the you know your team doesn't win. But there, in order to be in that state, there's a clarity. There's a sort. I, w- I would say a crystal vision of what's possible, and to get to that place, you have to be able to tune out the noise, specifically the noise of what other people think of you. And if you're an entrepreneur or if you're an artist or a creator specifically, this idea of what other people think of your work and by extension, potentially you, whether that's accurate or not, is a big deal. So if we can play through that, we are going to be our best, highest performing, and I will argue most fulfilled self. So when you started writing this book, who did you write it for and why focus about specifically how other people's opinions matter, unfortunately, to us and how can we change that? Oh, good. This is so fun because I, I'll tell you how the origin story started is that I specifically remember when I was a young, I was 16 years old, I just got my license. and. I saved up to buy a car, um, we, we, humble means growing up, and it was a Mazda B2000 truck. Okay, I had a Mazda B2000. Stop. <laughs> of course we did. That is great. I couldn't afford the Mazda B2200, the 2200. Of course. Of course. I had the Mazda B. So I was like, okay, like I saved up and I really, <laughs> and I was very excited to drive this car. Now, I'm driving down the I'm driving down the street and I have this specific memory and it's it, it it's it's stuck with me is that I was driving I'm not a good driver yet I'm 16 I just got my license and as somebody was passing me on my left and so they're they're going in the same direction as me I remember thinking I wonder what they're thinking about me mm. and and I was like that is like terrible <laughs> You know, like, what am I doing with myself? So I had this existential moment, like, why am I not just driving? I, you know, and why am I thinking about what they're thinking about me? So that was a little bit of a lightning bulb moment for me that that's weird. And mm. I remember sit, as I did that, I sat up a little straighter and I wanted to look cool. And I, I thought to myself, like, this isn't the authentic way. This is, there's something else happening here. And I just kind of let it go, but it has stuck with me for, you know, 40 years. And so, so I thought, and it didn't go away. I, I suffered from this overtuning to what other people might be thinking or are thinking of me. And I thought I was alone in it. I thought I was the one that was feeling a bit more like a chameleon than everyone else and playing a social game for, to, to be okay in the eyes of others. And it was really born out of like, me not knowing fully who I am. And of course at 16, I don't have a clue who I am. Yeah. But then when it started to become a bit more problematic is like, 
when I was in my 30s and I was still playing that game. I knew myself better, you know, but it wasn't like this conscious game I was playing. It was just, I just felt unsettled too often. And I was making choices for at least weighing in how are people going to think about this choice that I'm making. And it was just exhausting. I was tired of it. Then I started spending more time with um, Best in the World. And they too were talking about that. And I thought, oh my God, I'm not alone in this. And so I wrote an article, let's call it 24, 36 months ago on Harvard Business Review about ways to stop worrying about what other people think of you. And mastery is really about getting to the signal and gating out the noise. And the signal is always in the present moment. And, and it's not the present moment of focusing on what somebody else might be thinking. It's the present moment of the task at hand. And I wrote this article about it and how some, you know, some very clear ways about how to work with that anxiety. And 12 months later, they called me and they said, hey, um, you're the number one downloaded article on Harvard Business Review. I was like, wow, okay. And they said, can we, can we write a book about it? So, okay. So I said, now's not a great time. I'm, I'm you know, wrestling alligators as an entrepreneur. I don't have the bandwidth. And they said, okay. Um, they reran it 12 months later, came back up and they called and they said, listen, it was the number one downloaded again. Can we please, you know, figure out how you're, you hit a nerve. Can we please? I said, oh, this is really cool. So I spent two years researching what is the science that underpins it? And come to find out, um, I think it's the water we swim in. I think it's, you know, um, I think it's the the air that we breathe. I think it's the thing that is so common that we've we've kind of missed it. And I, you know, I just named it the fear of other people's opinions to be one of the great constrictors of human potential. And you know, if you think about fear of other people's opinions, it's cleverly you know dubbed FOPO. Yep. And I think about David Foster Wallace and the story that, you know, and the two young fish swimming along and there, there was an older fish that, that comes, you know, is passing by them and he nods at the young fish and he says, morning boys, how's the water? And then the two young fish, they, they swim on for a little bit and eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? So the older fish's question in that moment, you know, how's the water? It's meant to make the young fish think about their own reality and the things that are so ingrained in their existence that they fail to notice them. And I think some of life's most important realities are hidden in plain sight. And FOPO is one of those things, this, this undercurrent of am I okay in the eyes of others? And until we square up with that, I think we, we get whipped around by the world around us. And um, I'm happy to talk about the biology and the neuroscience and the psychology and the interface of those. But until we square up that much of our resources and attention are, are given to what other people might be thinking of us, we'll never become what we're capable of. And there's real reasons we tune to it. There's biological safety involved in this. And um, so it feels relieving, uh, re- relieving. <laughs> It's relieving to get on the other side of it. I don't, it's, and I want to be very clear. This is not about not thinking about what other people might be thinking because that's important. This is not about not thinking about opinions of others because some opinions are really important. This is about an excessive worry. This is about a clouded filter that infuses your decision-making to be accepted, not rejected. 
more so than the authentic expression of what you've come to understand. And so I'm, I'm excited to talk about it, as you can tell. And I, I, yeah, well, this is, yeah. you know, obviously we've had you as a guest on the show before I've been on, on finding mastery of your, your podcast, which is so well, so done. much fun. Oh, thank yeah. you. It was, so, it was so fun to have you on. Yeah. So much fun. And when I saw this, you know, I, I get a preview of this stuff from you and your team and just mm-hmm. being tuned into this stuff. And when I see the, the title of this work, I immediately like my head fills with so many questions and just is like, okay, great. This is a laser beam focused at our audience. And one of the first questions that popped into my head, this is months ago, prior to us even agreeing to make another show was I want to know what Dr. Michael says about this very complex thing, which is, Most of the people's opinions early in life, especially, or when we are making these decisions, you talked about being a 16 year old, when we're in this young adult phase and, or as an adult who has what we would track as an identity, they say, this is who I am. This is the job I am. This is who my family members are. We have these narratives about ourselves. It's when we're in these positions forming as young adults, or we were locked into an identity locked is in air quotes there for people who now are listening and not watching that the problem or a major problem is we the the people whose opinions of us are very impactful they might they don't live in our heads they are our parents our career counselors our peers our brothers sisters and we care a lot about that and sometimes too much so much so that it doesn't have us live in that that authentic expression of who we are, the kind of art we want to put out in the world, the kind of business that we want to make, because perhaps I always just give a, a dull, but um, clear example that our grandma doesn't think that being a YouTube creator is a great way to spend our life. Or our parents don't believe that the business that we want to start can transform the world. And those can be impactful. And so when you talk about there is a list of people who matter and actually thinking about it is a worthwhile, you know, to, if you can sort of compartmentalize it or frame it. So I want to hear from you. How do we manage this interesting intersection between caring enough about what our parents think of us and being our best self and being free of other people's opinions, uh, you know, managing the FOPO as this, you know, the term that you have uh, mm-hmm. so adroitly coined. So What's how how do we manage that? Because that has so many people, people specifically in this community, stuck. Okay, so it's it's the right question. And let's frame it one more one more level. So we're make sure we're talking about the same thing. It is as much about the hypervigilant social readiness to not blow it, to be accepted. That that's that's the more important part of FOPO. It's this preemptive, um, exhaustive attempt to to try to interpret what they might think or might think of you later. As a that's more important than the actual opinion of the person. And I'll and I'll, I'll drive this home in a minute. So this is does not read this does not rise to the level of clinical anxiety. This is a latent. Um, filtering process about 
influ- influencing how you think, how you choose words, how you behave, so that you won't be rejected. Because rejection is such a powerful biological mechanism. If we were kicked out of the tribe long ago, uh, it surely meant death. You know, because we'd have to hunt and forge and protect and gather and and we'd have to do all of that for maybe our spouse and a cousin and a few kids that we had. That that meant death. That was like we're gonna get picked off quickly. So we want to be inside the pack for safety. But as a creator, an entrepreneur, as a somebody aspiring to be their very best, that means we're punching through on the fringe. So it is actually dangerous to be authentic to yourself. It is belonging is safety danger is authenticity and but it, you, you, i think it's a fundamental decision that we have to square what are we really doing in life and when i ask most people i say um what is your operating system designed for and this and we'll get to the conversation yeah survival say okay when you train your mind what do you want your you're designed to be about, to really go for it, to have the quote unquote good life. And of course, people raise their hand and they say, yeah, I want the good life. That's what I'm trying to do here. And I say, that takes risk now. And they go, oh yeah, I'm a risk taker. Yeah, I know. I know. Like I, I, I'm good. And then I give them a moment to come on stage, let's call it. It could be a small room or big room to see how their mind works under pressure. What do you think most people do? Freeze. Yeah. So they say they want to go for it in life. They say they want to take risks. They say they want to be great learners. They say they want to, to um, they don't really, they're not encumbered by the opinions of others because they're the strong human. They're the go for it person. But then given the moment, their real operating system is the fear of people's opinions because why else would you be afraid to go on stage? Why else would the fear of public speaking be one of the greatest fears of modern times? The audience does not have weapons. What they have are is criticism and judgment and con- condemnation and critique and like they have that as a weapon. So we're terrified of that. So how do we deal with this? Is first recognize like, could you be affected by it? Like, could could this be part of your life? And if you if you're already past that and you're like, hell yeah, like I'm exhausted by this. Like I'm, uh, I know that there's more to give. I know there's more to grow. All right, great. First order of business. Be very clear about your first principles in life. Okay, because your first principles, meaning the the principles that you want to guide your thoughts, words, and actions. So you decide. You can borrow them from any philosophical tradition. You could borrow them from Buddhism, Christianity. Islam, you could borrow them from Nietzsche, you, you could borrow them from anywhere, John, you could, whatever. Or you can just get a piece of paper out or several pieces of paper and see if you could whittle it down to a handful of first principles that you want to help guide your thoughts, words, and actions. Okay, and then maybe even more concrete. If Jesus happened to be in the room with us, what do you think his core first principle would be? Love thy neighbor. How about it? Okay, pretty cool. Um, and how do we know that? Well, there's a lot written about them. Um, and I think we would say that he was about it. He thought about it a lot. He acted on it a lot. There was a consistency in how he showed up relative to that first principle. If um, Gandhi was here, 
we might say, you know, this is about um, freedom. If uh, Dr. King was in the room, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., if he was in the room, we'd say he was about equality. And so that first principle was so important that he lined up nearly all of his thoughts, words, and actions. Mother Teresa, be in service. I don't know where she came among. Amelia Earhart, go for it. Explore. And, you know, I can go on and on and on. Okay, that's just to ground the idea that first principles, when they're clear, can can guide your thoughts, words, and actions, but you have to practice it. First, you need clarity of what your first principles are. And then if you can get that down to a sentence or two, something that you could um, hold in your consciousness, it's hard to hold a paragraph, but you could hold a couple words or maybe even a couple sentences. In the forefront of your decision-making, you have a better chance of being the human you want to be. All right. That sentence or two, so you take all your first principles, you whittle that thing down to a personal philosophy, a one or two sentence um, uh, axiom about what matters most to you. This is big work now. Okay. This is not like, you know, um, easy lifts, but if we, if we want to be our best, like we kind of got to do a little bit of this heavy work and you could do this over a cocktail. You know, it doesn't have to be like serious and intense. You you could do this with friends. You could do it by yourself. Um, but you want to make sure it's real to you. And one of those litmus tests is when you play it out loud, if before you're about to say it out loud, that, that you, you, you are just going to listen and feel how it sounds to say it out loud. Because the first time I did this work, and I had a mentor of mine challenge me to do this type of work, he knew that I was just, I was a lost little dough, you know, and he's like, Mike, you need some grounding, you know, work here. And I said my thing out loud. Instantly, I knew I had written that thing. I'd done all the deep work. But when I said it, it was for my dad's approval. And my dad, mm. I love my dad. And he holds a big space in my heart. And um, he helped me be who I am. And I wanted to, I wanted to please him. I wanted his favor. I wanted, I wanted this strong man to say, yeah, good job, kid. And it just bled into my adulthood. And I think that many of us can feel that if we have parents that cared and parents that were, you know, had a big presence. So, um, so you want to, you want to just get into that space where it's like, when I say it, I want to, I want to chin check this. Is it authentic to me? And it can mm-hmm. be a work in progress. It doesn't have to be a neck tattoo. You can, you can play with it, you know, like if you, you know, it's, that's fine too. And, you know, so, so I think that that's the first order of business. That's the head, that's the big rock to get in the container. What are your first principles? Know those things and then line up your days to be about them. Mm. And then you start to stack those. And as you stack those with a highly proficient craft and a carriage that doesn't get in your way, but actually might help you, you know, unlock some stuff. Oof, you know, I think we're on our, on our way. And so from clarity to conviction is an interesting life arc. And what's in the sits in the middle between having that conviction that the greats have, you know, whether it's Michael Jordan having the conviction, give me the rock at the end of the game. You know, when he pushes off of Russell, snap, that iconic moment in sport, you know, the, the finals snaps from the elbow um, and the ball goes in, game over, you know, celebrates, you know, retires. The whole, that whole, to want that ball, to have that conviction is a very cool thing. To have that conviction of that um, Magellan, I'm going to go see if the world is flat. He convinced a queen and a king to give hit the five biggest badass ships 
which were a big deal at that time in the 1500s, to go see if the world was actually flat or round. And if it is round and I come back, y'all are going to be rich. <laughs> okay. So he did that work. He had such clarity about the mission he wanted to go on. And he had such conviction. He died for it. He didn't make it back, by the way. So not all these stories are but from clarity to conviction what sits in the middle of those those two pillars are mental skills the mental skills required to be fully present when the heat gets turned up when stress is on board when there's some sort of pressure in the environment we we, we don't need better technical skills because that's not going to carry us because what happens to technical skills when our mind constricts and our body tightens up, we lose access to those beautifully proficient skills that we were able to do in the safety of our living room or the practice field when no one's, you know, there's no consequence. So what we need is to keep the aperture open from a psychological, emotional standpoint and to keep that aperture open so we can access our creative, our, our critical thinking, our attuning you know, whatever our skill is, like to keep that aperture open, we need to train mental skills. And, and, and that, those are not hard. There's five basic mental skills and you could weave them in just like you practice, you know, sets and reps in a gym. You can do sets and reps mentally as well. Okay. Three important things in reverse order. What you just said, these five things that you can weave in, uh, prior to that was the, um, allowing it's it's almost an allowing the 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 mind once you've trained it allowing it to drive rather than thinking of these skills that oh wait i'm how, your, your craft like if you're in golf where how am i gonna put my hands on the top of my backswing or if you're an entrepreneur and you're or you're, you're giving a talk how do i not freeze you know there, there's the sort of the, the the readiness about that and then going all the way back to the top are these first principles so those are the three pins that I put in what, we, what you just said, and I want to cover them. Okay. Let's, cool. let's go in reverse order. So what are these, some of these skills that you feel like are practicable, which just, and we don't have to go into detail on in all of them because okay. I, I, there's a lot of ground to cover, but what are these skills? And we can, again, get the book and <laughs> go deep on these things, but share a little bit about what, what, what are these, these skills that we can practice? I'll answer all those. Is that, did you just do that from memory? Meaning yes. like, are you a good listener and you're able to like hold ideas in? Yes. In, I have no notes. I have no notes in front of me. Yes. Yeah. That's cool, man. Yeah. Thank you for, for that. That's a, that's a skill. That's a real oh. skill. And um, you've, you've tuned that. And I would say that listening deeply and to work with something as you're listening, um, working memory and great listening is, is a part of mastery. And mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm so uh, that was fun. Just for me to see you go, oh, A, B, and C, and even in reverse order, maybe it made it easier for you. But that was so. Thank you. It's a, it's a hint at why you're so good at what you're good at as well. Okay, so back to the question to him. Uh, mental imagery. We'll just use that one for a moment. Uh, also known as as uh, visualization. I don't use the word visualization because um, imagery is an absorbed experience. It's not just visual mm. and. So when you go into, okay, I'll, I'll use a story to share the the science. The science on imagery is quite ridiculous. Like it, it's 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 amazing. Like it increases confidence. It helps with um, myelinization of your nervous system so that you're more familiar 
your ner- your nerves are more grooved and familiar with patterns that uh, of excellence. It like I said, it helps with confidence. It helps with like problem solving. Like and 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 it's really a powerful tool, and it's not well used by many of us in a disciplined way. Mm. We are using our imagination a lot all the time when we're trying to imagine what might somebody be thinking of me. You know, that's part of imagination, but to use it in a disciplined way for um, your growth, uh, to be a better person or to be a better teammate, I'll get to that in a minute, is a skill that we can work on. And so imagery is when I'll just say you close your eyes and you become absorbed in what the greatest street fighter of all time, Hicks and Gracie, shared with me. Hicks and Gracie is a legend in, in he started Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Gracie jiu-jitsu, I should say. And um, He's an absolute legend. Thousand street fights, never lost, that type of person. So he and I are sitting down to talk about like how he uses his mind because he is um, obviously technically proficient, but he's able to access all of that technique in a fist fight. You know? And so I'm asking him how he does it. And he goes, oh, imagery. And he's got bro- you know, this kind of um, broken uh, Portuguese, Brazilian uh, accent. And he says, imagery. And he lights up and he says, it's the most beautiful movie I could ever make. And I am at the center of the movie. I am the star. And I see what I want to experience later in the most beautiful way. And when I close my eyes, I create that movie. And I said, how often do you do it? He said, oh, every day. So I share that story. And I share another, uh, it was an athlete who was the fastest man on the planet. And he goes, Mike, I got a problem now. I said, what's that? And he says, um, you know how we talked about doing imagery? Well, I found that doing it in the shower is like a place that I can really get into it. But my wife thinks I have a masturbation problem. So she like keeps that. running in and checking to see like, what am I doing in these long showers? <laughs> so I say that because like he's showering all the time, uh, you know, like, and so I love your laugh, dude. And so, so. So I'm not suggesting imagery just the night before a thing, but like this consistent, uncommon, this, this relentless pursuit to feel and see how you want to upgrade or how you'd like to be in certain environments later. And Felix Baumgartner, who I, who I feel like I'm, I'm trying to drive the point home by you, using stories. You're, nail, you're nailing it. Felix Baumgartner was the guy who Red Bull jumped out of the the capsule, you know, way high in the air. Yes, that was so, legendary. Yeah. yeah. So he went up 130,000, 128,000 feet to be exact. No one has ever been that high um, to, in an attempt to jump to break this speed barrier. So he was going to be transonic his body was going to be transonic and the brightest minds in aerospace said, listen, we don't know what's going to happen. Your arm might be doing one speed and your chest and head doing another speed. We don't know if it's going to rip off or not. And so there's consequential, of course, in that environment. And if, if he went into a flat spin, so if he jumps from 128,000 feet and he's off by just a little bit and he starts to rotate where his head and his feet are kind of in the circular flat spin, all the blood would rush to his head and his feet and he could land. He was going to land no matter what, but land as a potential, you know, vegetable where like his brain 
had so much blood volume or lack of blood that um, it's no longer able to function. So that was a real risk in, in that moment. So he wanted to make sure when he jumped, he was completely square on an uh, on a uh, imperfect, st- uh, unstable, moving platform that was only half the half the size of his foot. <laughs> you know, as he as he opened up the door, the capsule door to look out to you know Earth, one hundred thirty thousand feet, getting his feet on something that's only about like you know, a handful of inches. It's an amazing thing that he did. But he used his mind to be able to see that moment hundreds, if not thousands of times before he actually got there because he had to get it right. So when we go to a, a board meeting or we're going to a living room to have an intimate conversation, we don't have to have it right. We'll likely get a second pass or if we get kicked out of the boardroom or if we don't have that, if we run out of money from an entrepreneur perspective, um, it doesn't mean that we're going to die. We're going to get a second chance to sort something out. So, so it becomes less critical. So we spend less um, purposeful time training our capabilities. That's why I love the honest environments because they must be true and honest. They, they mm-hmm. make a deep commitment to their capabilities where the rest of us, I don't live in consequential environments. I, my body responds like it's consequential because this ancient brain trying to sort out modern <laughs> dilemmas the ancient brain knows consequence and how to respond, fight, flight, freeze, sometimes submit. And, but it hasn't sorted out like Instagram. It hasn't sorted out like a stadium and public speaking. It operates like that's a saber tooth. That's a warring tribe coming your way. You better arm up now or you better run fast. And we don't do either of those on, on a pitch deck or you know, some sort of intense conversation. We just feel all of that and fake it. We feel our heart. We feel our lungs. We feel our breathing. We feel the cotton mouth and we just pretend like we're okay. That's bullshit. That's an exhausting way to go through life because I lived it for far too long. It's bullshit for me. I don't know if it is for anyone else, but like that fake it till you make it, it's fundamentally wrong. Yeah. I don't fake anything now. I don't fake anything. So, so if you do the right thoughtful work of mental imagery we're talking about here, if you do that thoughtful work ahead of time, you have tools to navigate, to adjust, to change your focus, to change your arousal levels, to to be more eloquent in the present moment. That is possible, but we weren't taught it in grade school. So let me just get right down the mechanics, mental imagery. If you can start with one minute a day, cool. Somewhere like 12 to 20 is probably more ideal. And it's not, you don't have to do it every day for the rest of your life, but I would start now and practice playing a movie in your mind with all of the senses. You can smell it, hear it, taste it, and feel it. And you can watch it from a drone perspective, an audience perspective. You could watch it from inside your own body. And you want to feel what it's like to be you in a particular circumstance that hasn't happened yet. That's it. That's all it is. So pick something that's important to you and then see and feel yourself walking into that environment or riding into that, whatever it is, and being your very best. And I would, I would pick an 85-15 perspective. 85% of your time when you play this movie, be a badass. Be great at it. See it and feel it. Slow it down from all different directions. And really, like it's, it's, the, it's the idea of excellence in your own mind. and. F- 
asterisk excellence. Excellence to me means being at home with yourself wherever you are. It's not the shiny metallic feel of like I'm on the top of the podium. It's this feeling of being at home with myself everywhere, anywhere. Okay, then that 15% of the time, see yourself in a compromised position. See yourself maybe sweating on stage. See yourself like, like Michael Phelps did. His coach was on Finding Mastery and, and Michael Phelps did a lot of imagery. One of the greatest ever athletes, period. And he was spending time in his mind seeing his suit rip off and, and finishing strong, seeing his goggles flip over with water rushing in and finishing strong. Sure enough, as we know, you can kind of check the records on one of his gold medal attempts uh, when he actually won gold. Handful of strokes before he touches, his goggles flip over and um, you know he's consumed with water and it, he, he doesn't break stride. And now for some of us that go, you shouldn't have thought that because if you see it, it'll happen. This, have you read the secret? You got to read the secret. I got to wave my arms now, Chase. I got to wave my arms. You might like the secret. I, we can still be friends, <laughs> you know, but like, you know, like, but that's not how this works. My best understanding of, of good science. That's not how this works. I'm happy to be wrong. Um, and that would be really cool if I was wrong because I can see a lot of things in my mind, but I don't think that that's how it works. And so um, it is a mechanism, a free mechanism to see and sort out alternatives and ways of being in the future that makes us relatively unique. And we don't use it in a disciplined way. Massive opportunity for people. That's one. Man. You know what another one is? Chase, breathing. Good old breathing practice. And I know you've squared up on this you know, yep. uh, lots. And um, that's a mental skill. So the, the principle is called arousal regulation. And when I say that to my 15-year-old son, he looks at me and goes, Dad, what are we talking about? <laughs> Is it one of those times in that conversation, Dad? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So arousal regulation just means when your body activates and it activates for lots of reasons, but basically you've interpreted something to be really important. And when it switches on, we have abilities to be able to work with that uh, intensity. Breathing is one of those great capabilities. And so, but if you're only going to do breathing training, the moments before the intense thing, it's like doing free throw shooting for the first time ever before the NBA finals. Like, no, <laughs> they've been practicing for years. That's how this works, right? And so, so we want to practice, put in a breathing practice on a regular basis. And if you, if you wanted to link imagery and breathing, that's a nice little entryway. If you do some breathing training right before you do some mental imagery, if you said, listen, I've only got 15 minutes, maybe do seven minutes of breathing and seven minutes of imagery, or maybe do, you know, 14 minutes of breathing and two minutes of imagery. You know, I think you've got more than 15 minutes, but Instagram tugs on our attention. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so those are two self-talk is another one. We can be great at self-talk. You can practice it. Yep. Um, goal setting, uh, pre-performance routines, you know, um, so those, those are a handful of the mental skills that we can practice. Incredible. Now, I, you know, I promised we were going to trot back through these other sort of, um, is a very ambitious conversation we're trying to have here for our, our listeners. And in the middle of all that, what occurred to me is just, just giving us these five is so valuable. I want to ask a couple of specific questions. I also was introduced to mental imagery. Um, I'll just say in the eighties as a young kid, 
I was identified as an athlete that had potential. I was introduced to some sports psychologists. I was given some white papers and some books and, and the ability through the Olympic development program and soccer to have ex- exposure to this. And it was transformative. I got totally. very, very excited about it. And one of the things, what I love the distinction between not mental uh, visualization, but actually imagery because what I found to be one of the most powerful things for me in that moment was the smells. You know, I was, I would be like the smell of the grass on Friday night as you're, you know, slide tackling and running around. Like it was so visceral for me. And that, that, that was, it happened to be like this linchpin in having this be very visceral and very real for me. And the ability to have my imagery be very real and submersive was, I think, the word that you used. I could, then it was more powerful even than a movie. Because in a movie, you're watching a movie, right? And even that's you might it. be hear, hearing it. sounds. But I was just, I, I, and I became consumed with visualization and it went on to be very valuable for me. And as an entrepreneur, I affected many of those things, you know, having our, my last company acquired. That was a story that I had been telling myself and I'd lived those moments very regularly. So thank you. That That is in itself a very powerful gift for me to receive from you in this, in, in our show here, because it completes the puzzle for me. Like, oh, that's why imagery instead of visualization. Um, because, you know, I, I want, there's a, so much ground that I want to cover. I promised to trot back over those sort of three different attributes. Mm-hmm. If you were to try and, you know, give our listeners a highlight reel. Was there anything else you wanted to say on those other items? Because I want to, there's a whole nother aspect of our conversation. I want to make sure to get to, but I want to give you the opportunity to fill that promise that. (laughs) Yeah. Like I think, I think we've covered good territory. Like there's, you know, and I love that you just brought up highlight reel because Mm. that's what, that's what we talk about in sport. Often, like instead of mental imagery, we might say, Hey, how you doing on your highlight reels? Mm. And it's the, it's the movie that you're playing. So that's another way to think about it, but no, 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 let's move forward. You okay. know, like I'm, I'm the, cool with it. This, the, so the next bit is very specific to your latest book, which again, folks, if you're listening now and you can't write this down for some reason, because you're driving or whatever, you can't just, just make sure to pick this book up as someone who's been professing how these tools have impacted my life. And across so many guests on the show, I think, what Dr. Michael's got here is a um, is the perhaps the most focused piece of work that crossed the thousand episodes of the show that we've had on how to actually put this into practice. And this is stop worrying about what people think of you. So that's the book. And to underscore that subhead, right? Stop worrying about what people think of you. I want to know what is the most misunderstood or under understood aspect of that for people who are, you know, showing up new to this topic. I think we're all walk around, as you said, this is a subtext that plays in so many people's life. And if you distill it, it's like, it's there for pretty much everybody. You said it early on in your introduction that even the highest performers in the world had this. And that's part of what made you interested in it. Where, where fundamentally, do we get this wrong? What are some of the most basics that we can attune our attention and what, what are some actions that we can start to take to stop worrying 
about what people think of us. Well, let's wrestle with that that last bit, like, and get to some actions here because um, the signal to noise ratio is kind of what this is about. And there's when you're attending to the noise or distractions, um, it's hard to manage the, the the required proficiency to be artistic or to demonstrate or feel mastery or to get an unlock of something that you're trying to solve if you're attuning to a, uh, a distraction or noise. So this is really about training your mind to be in the present moment more often because that's the present moment is where high performance happens. It's where artistry is expressed. It's where all things that are beautiful and amazing are experienced and where pain and suffering is also experienced. So that the true life happens in the present moment and we increase the frequency of our time being there. We're better off as, mm-hmm. as, a, as a species and as a person. So when we're, when we're using our mental models to be able to try to extrapolate what somebody else is thinking of us, there are times that that's important, but that is, that is to be accepted. And that there are times when that's important too. So um, that's where this kind of tension is. So this is not, I'm not suggesting don't care uh, because that's like sociopathology. It's narcissism. Like that, let me use another, another example is that when I talk to athletes about trying to understand their ideal competitive mindset, they often have two variables that are competing with each other. But there's a unique cross nexus. There's, a, there's an intersection between those two that is like the vibe for them. For example, it's like they want to be calm and intense. So like have a fire, but still be smooth and calm. Like that's hard to square. And it takes time and practice to, to turn on, to know how to turn on that state. Same here is it takes time and practice to recognize when an opinion is important and when an opinion is you're excessively worrying about the opinion one way to do that here's the skill so we talked about um your first principles and and personal philosophy Hmm. um we've all now i want to introduce a second which is this idea of a performance-based identity so again that goes back to you know Mr. Wallace talking about the water that we're swimming in and not quite recognizing it. Many of us, me included for a long time, have have a performance-based identity. So when I was young, and I think you might recognize this, Chase, if you're young and, and talented, athletic in this case, that people talked about the 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 output part of us. They talked about the the crosstown rival. They talked about like last week's game and they talked about you know, the goals and hopes that you had relative to this part of your life, more so than just about anything else. When that happens, we, and between the ages of 12 and 18 to 22, we're trying to figure out our identity. That's kind of our job at that phase. And if the outside world is like talking to us a lot about one narrow part of us, and we're loving that we're getting that attention because it feels great. And we love how it feels to be good at something. We start to foreclose our identity to a very narrow way. And that narrow way is based on performance. For you, maybe performance as an athlete. So performance-based identity is defining who we are by how we do what we do in relationship to others. That's a big rub there. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay if I'm just a little bit better than you. I'm a, I, if I got a 65 on a test, but everyone else got 64 and below, 
I'm okay. So a performance-based identity is, um, is kind of at the crux of this thing. And it's a, it's a method for having a contingent self-worth. My self-worth is depending on my performance and it's depending on, you know, how people view me. It's, there's a looming fear of failure because if I blow it, kind of I've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I've thrown my whole self-esteem and self-worth out. And that's actually not really possible. And there's this perfectionist this drive, this obsessive need to be just great, to be good, to have the highest standard amongst anybody else, then I'm okay. So performance-based identity has problems. It will get you really good though. Again, this thing that this miss or misunderstanding, a performance-based identity will get you really good. So will uh, um, obsessive compulsive disorder. So will obsessiveness. So will narcissism. So will a lot of different things. It will not, it will not get you. So the treadmill for high performance is a different treadmill than the treadmill for mastery. So it will get you really good, but it won't break you free. And what got you there isn't likely going to be what will get you, you know, to the next sense of freedom or artistry or mastery or whatever we're looking for, joy, happiness, fulfillment. It's a different treadmill. And we put so many of our kids on the treadmill of high performance. Shit, man, what are we doing? And so. So performance-based identity is fundamentally different than a purpose-based identity. And a purpose-based identity is that I am in pursuit of something far bigger than me. And I'm in pursuit in trying to make a difference in my life adventure. And Mm -hmm. it's not about how well I perform, especially how well I perform to others. Because that performance-based identity is how you view yourself relative to how you are in others in others' comparison. So of course their opinion and the stack ranking is going to be a primary driver. So that's one of the ways to break free is to kind of push your seat back from the table and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Am I, is my identity wrapped in like how good I am? If it is, take a look at that. You know, that got you good now. Your audience is really talented, I imagine. You know, like you're switched on. I'm sure they vibe with that. And I don't want to be like the the thorn in the side or the fly in the champagne, but you know what? Sometimes the fly in the champagne is a little spicy. It's cool. And like, you know, I'm saying drink that champagne now, (laughs) you know, like, is there a way to have more purpose, clarity of purpose in your life? So first principles, that's one way to go. A second way, um, and these are not orthogonal. You can do both is square up with a purpose versus performance-based identity huge whiffs you just sort of like trotted out so many people's past who are listening to the show right now who uh, like myself were rewarded found you know beauty and meaning and utility and excellence and uh that makes for a different uh journey later in life when you have to start to understand and excavate some of that stuff and that is what the journey inward has been so uh, so powerful, so personal for me. What my wife is a meditation and mindfulness teacher. She teaches those skills. Uh, all the all that came into my life. I would say far too late, uh, but uh, maybe just at the nick of time. And um, yeah. and you know, understanding where people miss. I think there's a lot of people right now who are taking notes, saying, "Okay, you got my attention." The book has 
is so articulate about this. Again, say the title of the first rule of mastery, stop worrying about what people think of you. Is there a, a sort of a wrapper that you would care to put on this conversation to help those people who I think the idea of, of sport and performance and being an amazing person is seductive, but truly there's nothing more seductive than being the best version of yourself. So if through that period, right. So through that lens, is there a rapper that you'd care to put on this conversation and the idea of if people want to be their best, then fill in the blank aside from referring them to the book, which is that's the ultimate that's, you know, again, when I, I had a chance to see this early on and I feel grateful for it, but for those people who are still like, don't have the book in front of them, put a wrapper on being the best version of themselves. So when I thought you were talking about rapper earlier, I was thinking Eminem, Dr. Dre, like, what's the rapper that we're, okay, good. So the, the rapper, okay. So the rapper, the bow tie here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's be really clear. The first rule of mastery is to work from the inside out, is to go, to go inward and to figure out your blind spots, to figure out your tripwires, to understand um, how you operate. So that you can be just a bit more graceful in how you adjust to unforeseen conditions of the world. The first rule of mastery is to work from the inside out so that you can adjust more eloquently. And that, that is the beautiful science of psychology. So I'd say three ways to, to start that process. Get with somebody of wisdom and have conversations with them. That could be a psychologist. It could be somebody across the street from you. But dedicate time with somebody who has wisdom. Um, the second is mindfulness to you and your wife's uh, best practice. That is a badass way to get going on this. And the third is journaling. Now, if you're doing some combination of those three, I think you're, you're on the path of mastery to work from the inside out. I would just keep it super simple. Those are completely available. And... Um, I love having this conversation with you and there's so much more I would want to, to share our best practices, but I think we're at a pretty good place to say, start there and make a real commitment to work from the inside out. The freedom on the other side is um, as good as you can imagine. Yeah. It turns out that Socrates was pretty smart when he said, know thyself, you know, that is, that, that is this, this inward journey. And as someone who has been on this journey for a long time, especially in the, with the, through the perspective of how you saw yourself a performance-based identity. Uh, it's been a long and winding journey, but so worthwhile. And look, I, I don't want to talk about it like I've arrived because this is a, you did <laughs> this is, this is a work in progress, right? And I do love how you approach that. You, you know, yeah. you, you, the humility that you approach these topics with your own, you know, vulnerability and sharing your life experience, such as with, you know, with driving, yeah. but your, your relationship with your father, this is all really meaningful for us as listeners and watchers and supporters of you and your work. So I'm grateful for the time that you are willing to share with us in our community here from Dr. Michael and myself. Thank you so much for spending your time with us, listening, watching, however you're consuming the show. And until next time, we both bid you an awesome day. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, Chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. 
please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing for this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. <music>